Right now, switch your family to T-Mobile and get four lines for $25 a line with AutoPay and 5G access included on America's largest 5G network. So don't wait. Get unlimited and nationwide 5G access for the whole family for just $25 a line. Visit a T-Mobile store or T-Mobile.com today. Plus taxes and fees. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using over 50 gigs a month due to data prioritization. Video at 480p. Unlimited while on our network. Qualifying credit for plus lines required. Capable device required for 5G. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain features. See T-Mobile.com. What's going on, folks? Thanks for hitting that download button to check out a brand new episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade, your one-stop shop for toys, tech, and talk with some assembly required. I'm your host, Rich Butler, and if this is your first time downloading or checking out an episode, first of all, welcome. Second of all, a bit of background on what we do here. Toys and Tech of the Trade is an interview series where we sit down with content creators, entrepreneurs, and CEOs to discuss the gadgets and gear that they use to run their business, create their content, or deliver their brand's message to the masses. In addition to that, the toy aspect is not just relegated to action figures, Funko Pops, the usual stuff. The definition of toys is very broad here. It could be cars, it could be motorcycles, it could be knives. You'd be surprised what people consider toys, and we get into that with every one of our guests. But before we get into this week's guest, a little housekeeping first. First of all, I want to thank everybody that checked out the episode from two weeks ago with Phil Del Rivo and Tom Mott from Ofruck. What a what a amazing and unique conversation and just two unique guys that really had a, a, an awesome story to share. I really enjoyed speaking with them and hopefully we'll be working with them in the future to give you guys some games and do some other stuff together. So definitely want to thank all of you that have downloaded the episode and checked it out. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, this past weekend, we did a uh, cradle con myself and my variant issue co-host Jimbo Slice. Uh, very fun event. Uh, we'll get into that in a post on the site. And you can check out some of Jimbo's photos at Jimbo underscore Slice on Instagram. Last but not least, many of you know that the release schedule has changed for this podcast. But if you don't, here's a brief reminder. The original schedule was bi-weekly on Tuesdays. But we have now moved it to bi-weekly on Wednesdays. And now with the... Uh, with a young newborn in the house, it keeps things interesting. So the move to Wednesdays is definitely a welcome change, at least for me personally. Nonetheless, you're not here to listen to my ramblings about personal stuff. So let's get into this week's guest. My guest is Matthew Billy, who is an award-winning podcaster who's been in the game since 2003. He got his start in terrestrial radio, then went on to work at Sirius XM Satellite Radio and his first podcast, Between the Liner Notes, won the Newhouse School of Public Communications Mirror Award for Best Single Story. And um, it was, uh, you know, uh, just an amazing accomplishment. The episode was about the founding of MTV, and we're going to make sure to include links to that in the show notes so you can check out that award-winning episode. Matthew and I talked about a lot of things, but the biggest thing that I wanted to speak to him about was his new podcast, which is Bleeped, which is a biweekly documentary style podcast that's going to cover censorship. But it's not going to be censorship at the government level. It's going to be censorship at the local level. Just guys and girls and individuals like you and me that have been censored in some way who that have been wronged by the system. Uh, Matthew shares their stories 
and it is just a, a breath of fresh air the way that it's being done and it's spotlighting just like I said the little guy the person who's just fighting the good fight trying to get their voice heard and it's a conversation I truly truly enjoyed I learned a lot I consider Matthew a peer based on his longevity in the space and I learned so much from our conversation with him and I hope that you do the same so without any further ado I'm going to turn it over to Matthew so you can learn more about the toys and tech of his trade all right, I'm sitting down with Matthew Billy, host of the upcoming Bleeped podcast, which is going to be tackling censorship. And I look forward not only to sharing the toys and tech of Matthew's trade, but having a nice, insightful conversation about censorship. Matt, thanks for taking the time for stopping by and sharing your story with us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. So you've been you've been in the in the podcast game well in in let me rephrase that you've been in the in the audio content creation space for for a long time <laughs> figure figure over over 15 years now and you've it's interesting because your career you've done terrestrial radio satellite radio and now jumping into the podcasting medium uh what what drove you to do radio in the first place you know what was it something you've always wanted to do where you were an entertainer where what navigated you there so I went to college at Fordham University in the Bronx, on the Bronx campus, nice. um, and they have a great radio station there called 90.7 WFUV. It's a, it's a AAA radio station, and even though it's owned by the university, it's autonomous, right? So they play the kind of music they want, uh, they do the kind of interviews they want, and they make the kind of content that they want. Uh, and my sophomore year, I decided to walk into the radio station and asked them if they had any jobs available. And the woman at the counter, uh, who, who was working the front desk says, well, we don't have, we don't really have any jobs except for one. We have one in the engineering department. And I said, that's perfect. Right. So, you know, a cu couple of weeks later, they brought me in, they started training me about how to be a broadcast engineer. Um, and you know, but I wasn't the only one that was looking for this particular job. There were actually 20 people that were in this, this training. And one of the things that allowed me to get a job instead of the other 19 was that I was willing to give up my Sunday mornings and actually engineer ch uh, the church broadcast. Right. Like and that that's that's a whole interesting story, too. Right. So the church broadcast was you, you put a couple microphones in front of the choir. Uh, you set up microphones for the priests and, you know, and then you set up. We, uh, there was a guy who would actually do play by play. Right. So, like announce. Well, you know, who's bringing, they're bringing the host up to the altar now. Uh, and because I was willing to give up my Sundays, I was able to get a job there and really, you know, trained to be a pretty good broadcast engineer. Wow. And that's, I mean, and that's led me to meet some really interesting people. You know, they have top notch musicians come in there. You know, I've engineered like, you know, an 18 piece jazz band with only 45 minutes to set up for it. So, you know, live broadcasting really makes you pretty nimble as an audio engineer. Now you you went into when you were studying at Fordham were you studying already to get into anything in the audio space or was it something where you just needed the job and then you kind of accidentally fell into it what were you, what were you studying at Fordham at the time Well believe it or not I wasn't officially studying anything at Fordham that was related I was studying classical history Oh okay right? so I was taking I was taking a lot of classes on Rome and Greece and and stuff like that but um the, what, what happened was I started to get interested in producing music and, uh, you know, I got some inexpensive music equipment and, you know, just to, I really liked it. So I thought, you know, why not 
try to get a job at this radio station. And that, I liked it so much that I ended up transferring schools to, to an audio engineering program. Still, uh, this is outside of Fordham at that point, right? Yeah. So I spent two years at Fordham and then I transferred schools to uh, City College in New York where, and they have a full time audio engineering program. Nice. I, you know, it, it's funny because every, everybody's story, especially when I talk to other people in, in, in the audio space, whether it's, uh, you know, the podcasting or anything else, their their path to get there is always so unique and so different. Like here you are studying classical history and then because of your interest in music, you jumped into this completely different um career path and it's 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 clearly paid off for you. I mean you you've taken your talents like from terrestrial to satellite to to podcasting. Now what was it like transitioning through each of those paths thus far? So obviously working working at Fordham and seeing the ins and outs of that and then going to let's say satellite radio what what challenges were there in that transition so that that's a very interesting transition because when at WFUV there was one station right you're only worried about one signal going out to the public whereas at at Sirius XM radio there were 140 channels and if you're a broadcast engineer there you have to worry about every single one of them you know at any given point uh, in the New York office, uh, we had they had something like 35 studios, and all of them could be active and live at the same time. So it's very it's very different just because of the scale. And what what got you to that position at the time? Was it the uh, same thing? Just you applied and you went for it, or what did your was it word of mouth? No, actually, the guy who trained me at WFUV uh, had a couple of years earlier had gotten a position at Sirius XM and he had a, he was a, he became a manager and he had a vacancy and he asked me if I wanted the position. Wow. That's, that's tremendous. I, again, you know, it's, it's one of those things about who, you know, and just paying it forward. That that's very cool. And how was that experience for you in, in terms of just being around again, operating over a hundred plus studios at the same time. And most importantly, everyone has their own particular setup. So I'm sure you had to memorize and, and, un, and, really dig into what makes everybody's setup unique because even though the equipment is for the most part the same right some people like to run a little hotter a little cooler on the microphones etc yeah everyone is very particular you're, you're absolutely right especially people that have been doing it for a while like um a good example is uh this old fm dj called cousin brucey who's extremely well known in new york he wanted a particular microphone right we had one microphone that was just always set up in the studio, but whenever his show came on, we'd have to swap it out. And if you didn't do it before he got there, you know, you'd get that phone call reminding you, you know, so it's a lot of little things like that. Uh, and, and really, you know, Sirius XM was like, it was like working for a broadcast ne- a network, but also it was almost like working for Comcast cable, where you have all this complex stuff. Uh, you know, you have to take 140 channels, uh, and then you've got all this equipment that turns it into a single bit stream to get it up to the satellite. We had three, we have three satellites and then that those three satellites beam it back down to the earth. It's, uh, it's like nothing I've ever experienced before with the complexity. It, it's funny you mentioned cousin Brucey because I, you know, I used to listen. I was a big listener to Opie and Anthony, um, when they were on, on Sirius XM and, you know, right. some of the, some of their, right. some of those guys. And I, and I remember hearing them mention cousin Brucey. So it's funny you mentioned that he had like a particular setup. Yeah. I mean, and you know, Opie and Anthony, their studio would have been like three doors down from cousin Brucey. Wow. They probably see each other in the kitchen while they were making coffee. 
Wow, that's you know, it's just the way it's just the way it was there. But it w- but it still had its own. And, and this is the thing about satellite radio, and you can you can clear this up in terms of even though you had quote unquote more freedoms, you were still handcuffed because it was still a corporate entity. So there were things that you still had to be aware of in terms of being talent and also in terms of production, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, a cor- it was a publicly traded corporate entity uh, that at the, at the time I worked there was trying real hard to get a merger approved. Uh, you know, it's a serious satellite radio and XM satellite radio were two different companies at the time. You know, so, so there were those considerations. Um, but also, like, they would also have, like, their own standards, right? So the government wouldn't necessarily be monitoring uh, those channels for swear words. But certain channels would self-censor. Like, I think the NASCAR channel would self-censor, and a lot of sports channels would self-censor. Uh, so, you know, every every channel, like, obviously Howard Stern wouldn't. That's why he wanted yep. to be at SiriusXM. So every channel would have its own set of guidelines. Interesting. Now, you let's let's talk about now the shift to to podcasting because you you launched a music podcast between the liner notes and i want to talk about that transition because did you launch that in the midst of you still working your traditional job or did you double down and decide that you wanted to jump into podcasting feet first so to speak no no no. i i did it with a job wow um so i i so basically i started working at a company that that was not broadcasting and after a couple of years of that, I kind of felt an itch to get mm-hmm. back into it. And my way of scratching that itch was to start, you know, between the liner notes, which for people who are not familiar with it, it's, it's a music podcast that is it's a documentary style music podcast that covers kind of unique ideas in music history. Okay. And well, why, why that format and why that particular genre? I mean, I know you have an interest in music, but what's, what made you say, you know, there's a, there's a vacuum here that I'm going to, that I'm going to fill with, with my content. Well, well, it's a combination of what you said, you know, just already being predisposed to being very interested in music. And, uh, also at the time, uh, when I launched it, uh, Gimlet Media startup had just launched serial had just launched. Uh, so when I started looking for ideas, like I wanted to make something in that style as best I could. And that became between the liner notes. And on, you know, you, you won a, uh, a New House School of Public uh, Communications Mirror Award for, for a story. And it was one of those things when I read that, I said, you know, to, to launch a podcast and to be able to say this is an award winning show, I'm sure it must have been incredible for you. How did that feel when you were, when you learned that you were going to be receiving this award? Oh man, that was, that was crazy, right? I had no idea that was coming because I didn't submit myself for that award. Somebody on the board of directors of the Newhouse School of Communications apparently was listening to Between the Liner Notes while he was showering and got halfway through uh, this particular episode, which is about uh, the founding of MTV. And he was like, you know what? This could qualify for a mirror award. So all of a sudden, my website, my website started getting all this traffic from uh, the Newhouse School of Communication. And at that point, it wasn't made public yet who the nominees were. So I'm like, why is my website <laughs> getting all this traffic? And a little while later, I get this email that says that I was nominated and they need a high res photograph of me. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, I, you know, I don't have a high res photograph. So I had to really quickly scramble on Craigslist to find somebody to take a high resolution headshot. 
That's you know, insane. And then, <laughs> you know, it was super cool. You know, it was it was done. The ceremony was done at Cipriani's, which is right across from Grand Central Station mm-hmm. in Manhattan. Uh, you know, it was beautiful, beautiful restaurant, beautiful ceremony. You know, a lot of you know, top notch journalists are there. And my particular category, there were three people and or three three groups of people, I should say, three teams. Uh, and and one of them was Brian Stelter from CNN. And Brian Stelter was nominated for the wow. segment he did about uh, the Columbine shooting and the media's handling of it. You know, basically asking the question uh, by using the gunmen's names and elevating them to celebrity, did the media make a mistake? So I thought, you know, there's no way, there's no way between the line <laughs> of is going to beat CNN. It's just not going to happen. Right. Uh, so. Right. I didn't. So I didn't, you know, I could have invited my girlfriend for a couple of hundred extra dollars. I didn't because I didn't think I was going to win. You know, so I show up there, you know, I make sure I squeeze my way into uh, that area where they do the photography, the official photography. Right. You know, to, to have a couple photographs to prove to people that I was there. And, uh, you know, finally, we sit down and it's time to actually start the official ceremony. And, you know, I'm at the back table. Right. I, I'm with people who are there mostly to network. And, you know, so I'm just sitting in the back table and finally my category comes up and they call my name. And I'm like, oh, my Lord, I can't believe it. Right. So I get up and start walking. And the walk from the back table to the front is so long. Everyone's <laughs> looking around like, where is this guy? Yeah. But, you know, I got up. I gave a, a very short speech. And it was interesting, you know, because I had a couple of applause lines. And one of them that I thought would be an applause line got nothing but cricket. Because I said, no, I'm very excited uh, to be the first podcaster to receive a Newhouse Award or a Newhouse Mirror Award. Uh, And I I hope in the future there'll be more podcasts up up here. And I got nothing from the audience. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. You know, they're all they're all print journalists. Although, ironically, it wasn't that long after that the New York Times came out with the Daily. I'd like to take credit for that, but I probably can't. (laughs) (laughs) But but I'm actually glad that you mentioned that because. The interesting thing about podcasting is that so many people get the itch to do it. And I mean, you know, I, I started back in 06 when Apple first announced, uh, podcasts on iTunes. And then wow. I started wow. listening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, a, like I'm an OG in this too. And I started listening to, to a lot of them. And then boom, next thing you know, I'm, I'm calling into someone's show and that snowballed into doing a show on my own. And here we are. But the thing about it is that over over the course of, of these last few years, you've seen so many mainstream media entities looking up, to, you know, looking to, to jump into the space. I mean, it was just recently that somebody actually sent me um, a, a job for the New York Post to launch their own podcasting division. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, who would have thought that, you know, the New York Post, Daily News, all of these print newspapers mm. that are... In, in some cases, the tip of the spear when it comes to news here in New York City, all of a sudden now they're like, hey, we're the new kids on the block. You know, we have to compete with the Joe Rogans and the and the Tim Ferrises of, of, of the podcasting world. So it's it's definitely an interesting transition. I'm glad you brought that up because in your case, it's you you did this. You did it because you loved it. You were passionate about it. And someone, again, just listened to it purely on accident and said, wow, this is a an amazing piece of content that needs to be recognized. And that's a hell of an achievement. 
Oh, it is. I, I dust that trophy every week. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, it's interesting what you say about all of these uh, uh, mainstream print news outlets getting into this. Um, and I think, you know, there are certain outlets that really led the way. Uh, but I think, you know, they really see it as an extension of this, of the journalism that they're already doing in a lot of ways. And now that the, and now that the ad dollars have kind of caught up with the effort it takes to produce shows like that, I think they're more than happy to, to be podcasting. Yeah. I think, I think there's just a, a freedom that comes with carving out your own niche and really creating the stories that you want to tell. And that actually is, leads me into, into your latest endeavor, which is going to be bleeped and. You know, the Bleep podcast is going to be tackling censorship. And in the current in the current climate that we're dealing with in this country, um, across the board, not even just because of who's in office and that type of censorship, but just online censorship in general. You know, where where were you inspired to go in that direction? Well, well, let me rephrase that. What inspired you to go in that direction and tackle something that, again, it's it's a hot button topic, especially because you're telling real people's stories. Yeah. So there there was a moment. There's two answers to that. Right. So there's a moment when I got the, the spark of an idea for this show. And there was a moment that confirmed that I had to do it. And I'll tell you about both of them. All right. So uh, like like we were talking about between the liner notes, uh, a lot of those episodes, actually three of those episodes focused on musicians who had been censored. and you know, I really enjoyed them. And I found myself, you know, literally just buying books about censorship and music to try to find more stories. And I was, and, and so, and also what I found is that, you know, after doing between the liner notes for about two years, the music became less interesting to me and the social issues surrounding the music became really interesting to me. And, and, you know, there's all kinds of social issues surrounding music, but the one that really stuck with censorship and I remember I was trying to interview uh, Luther Campbell from Two Live Crew, who had that really famous censorship incident in 1990. That's right. For, for, their, for their album, As Nasty As They Want to Be. You know, and, you know, we had tentatively booked it. I, I had I was in Miami, you know, sitting in my Airbnb waiting for a phone call. Unfortunately, the phone call never came. But while I was waiting, I had this this idea, you know, you know, why don't we, you know, remove the music from it and just make a show about censorship. And then I kind of sat on that, that idea for a while. And then uh, what happened was there was that uh, rally in Boston called, you know, the free speech rally right. that you know all of the, you know, the right wing extremists held. And I thought, you know, this is ridiculous that they're trying to shield all of their really, really negative speech with the First Amendment. You know, they're, they're pr- pretty much misappropriating the First Amendment. That's right. So I think it's I think it would be great to do a show that, you know, sets the First Amendment back on the right track in people's minds. Well, I think also the the issue, especially, you know, you bring up the free speech rally and censorship in music, censorship in comedy is that. And, and, I, and I've said this just as a passing joke with a lot of people is that when we were growing up there, there was an openness like I'll use a great example. Archie Bunker, all in the family. You would, you, mm-hmm. if you gave that show now in our current climate, it would, it, the backlash would probably be huge just based on the fact that the subject matter and the things that were talked about were talked about in a very open, very direct way. Even though it was gift wrapped in comedy, it was still stuff that was hard hitting and people just 
weren't tackling back then. And now it's like the minute you talk about any of these items, given social media and just the, the accessibility of varying forms of communication, people, people get offended a lot easier. You know, people get angry about things a lot easier. And in my opinion, I just feel that if you're going to be angry about something, you know, be angry about the fact that, you know, kids are homeless on the street, you know, and not angry about what some guy wrote in a tweet. That's that, that again, that's just my personal opinion on that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I agree with you to a certain degree, but I also think that now a, a lot of people who would have found, you know, the Archie Bunker offensive didn't have the kind of voice that they, that they have now back okay. in the seventies. Right. You know, so now, you know, with things like Twitter, you know, we have all this ability to express ourselves, you know, and, you know, I know Archie Bunker, they tackle race relations quite a bit in that show. And I would, you know, I think there's maybe one African-American character and I haven't watched the show that much. So correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. And the rest are, are white people. And then probably the entire staff of writers was white men. Right. So you can I can kind of understand why maybe a show like that wouldn't fly as well. Right. Yeah. You know, today, um, because, you know, it's really only looking at an issue from maybe one side. But, you know, you know, I, but I, I, I definitely agree with you that there is uh, people do get offended a lot easier now. Well, the, the, the thing about it is, and I'm actually glad you, you talked about the makeup of of the show in the writer's room, because I think that that's a, a, a bigger problem in the sense of just how messages are delivered and i like that you had said about using the first amendment as a shield because the problem i think is that and and you know you can agree with this or not is that people in in this day and age you give a message and the message is coming from a one-sided sort of place so if i say um all hispanic people have been persecuted for years that's my opinion on the matter that's not fact because another Hispanic person can say, well, that's not necessarily true. You know, we've, we've, we've come a long way. Or another person who's half Hispanic may say, well, I've dealt with some, with some prejudice along the way. The story and the narrative are going to change. And I think that the problem is that when, when it comes to censorship, people kind of like to do blanket censoring, at least, at least in my opinion, where somebody will say something and because the value system or the way that it's being uh, expressed varies from theirs, they automatically want to stifle that message. Yeah. I mean, and if, if you want to get specific about specific companies, I, I don't believe that Facebook does a very good job of uh, policing their platform. I can agree you with know, that. I, you know, and, and like, it's not just, and, and the, you know, there are people on both sides that feel this way. I know, you know, conservatives are really upset about it currently, but Facebook has made a lot of other mistakes. You know, like, I mean, in, in 2015, they removed a bunch of drag queens yep. uh, because they because the drag queens were using their, their drag names instead of their legal names. Right. And, you know, and, and so like these platforms, right, they're not beholden to the First Amendment the way a government would be because they're private companies. But I also feel that, you know, because they're not beholden to it, they, they don't really think about it first. So, you know, what they focused on first is stock price. Right? So they're going to make, they're going to, and, and because of stock price, also public relations. And because that's kind of their moral compass, you know, they're not going to pay people, you know, a tremendous amount of money to get together and design policies that are going to be the most fair. Uh, case in point, I, for one episode that I've been working on, I've uh, interviewed three content moderators for Facebook. 
you know, and you would think that after the, the Russia stuff, you know, content moderators would be elevated to being one of the most positions of the company, one of the, one of the highest positions of the company, but they're not. I mean, they're not even full-time employees. In, in San Francisco and in Austin, Texas, uh, they're only allowed to work for 12 months straight. Then they, then they have to be laid off for three months before they can be hired back in order to comply with California's contractor law. Wow. You know, so it's like if you don't care about content moderation to actually pay people, you know, 12 months out of the year and give them a reasonable wage, like you're not you just don't care. Well, it, 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 interestingly enough, one of uh, one of my colleagues that that writes for RageWorks, he was a moderator from MySpace. So it, it's no kidding. Yeah. So it, it's funny you, you bring that up. And the thing about it is that in this day and age, the the way that you tackle communities and especially Facebook, because that's the thing, too. And this is something that um, a friend of mine and I talked about it, not related to Facebook, but something relating to comic books where you get a comic book graded. I said, if that person wakes up on the wrong side of the bed that day and you submit your comic book to get graded and maybe they don't like the character or they don't like whatever it is. A book that may get a high grade may get a low grade just because that person just wasn't in the mood, you know, or hated their job that day or whatever the case may be. And I look at moderators and, and people that uphold community standards in the same way, because that's the thing, too. What might be a joke to me might actually not be a joke to you if I'm, you know, a, a particular piece of, of subject matter. And I think the same applies for communities such as Facebook, where somebody will be banned for for sharing, you know, uh, a meme or something that may have just been lighthearted, but somebody just woke up that day and said, yeah, that's, that's not, that's not good. So to that, to that point, I know that you had conducted an experiment of getting yourself banned from social media. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, um, you, you know, you, you went and you actually went through the, using the White House's tool. And I, and I definitely want to dig into that. But, uh, going back to what I said before, does personal, uh, does the personal value system impact you think heavily the the way that communities are being moderated? Um, you know, I, I don't I don't think it's personal values. I actually think it's whatever. I think it, I think it's more uh, a response to whatever the media is saying at the moment. Okay, right. So so like if if all of a sudden the media is like you know Facebook isn't hard enough on conservatives, it needs to be harder then Facebook's going to go harder. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as conservatives are like, you know, they're censoring us, they're censoring us, you know, Laura Loomer is chaining herself to the Twitter office. I, I think then you're going to see somebody like Facebook back off a little bit because they're alienating 50% of their clients. You know, so I think, I think, I think when, when they probably want to, you know, put their personal feelings aside. And like I said, it's the share price that's guiding them. So anytime that, something happens that negatively impacts the share price, they're going to react to that and, and sometimes overcorrect for it. Now, you know, and, and I'll, I'll ask this just because I'm curious on your opinion. Let's take let's take a guy. Let's take Alex Jones, who got pretty much blackballed from all social media for the most part. Where do you feel he fits in with regards to to the current climate of censorship? Do you feel that he and again, this is just me asking you for uh, from mm -hmm. an opinion standpoint, mm -hmm. not even from reflecting bleeped or anything just you how do you how do you feel about uh, an individual like that and how they their message has been blackballed so to speak so i think in a case like alex jones you can actually go through 
what he says and finds a significant number of times where he's actually you know said speech that would be an exception to the First Amendment. Like, for example, uh, harassing all of the grieving families after the, the mm-hmm. Connecticut shooting. Right. Right. That that he's in court for that right now. Right. Because that type of speech is actually an exception to the First Amendment. Because it's inflammatory. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and those families can actually prove damages because Alex Jones's speech has, has caused them to be harassed. You know, and, and uh, you know, potentially he helps incite violence for Pizzagate. And I, I think when, when you're talking about things that, that um, approach the level of inciting violence or inciting harassment or a lot of other things that you're trying to incite, um, often, often the federal government would consider that, that speech to be uh, an exception to the First Amendment, and certainly Facebook would. Right. And, and that's, that's why I wanted to ask you that, because what happens is, and, and this goes back to what we were saying before about everybody's belief system, is that there's never been a clear cut methodology with any, with any company where they say, yes, freedom of speech. Yes, we all have it, but your speech shouldn't incite violence. You know, your speech shouldn't incite, uh, personal attacks. Your speech shouldn't incite, um, you know, crimes of any sort. And I think that that's a, that's a very big thing. And I think that a lot of people, to your point, they go and they say, well, you know, the first amendment, free, you know, free speech isn't free. And the thing about it is that it is, but if you're causing irreparable damage and harm to someone else, you kind of have to look, st- take a step back and ask yourself, is what I'm saying going to cause bigger problems for someone else? Definitely. Definitely. And, you know, I, and, you know, often I think Facebook is justified in uh, removing the accounts that they're removing. But they could do it with a little more transparency. Uh huh. Like, agree. Like they're sending, they're sending them emails that are basically saying, you know, your account has been removed. You violated our terms of service. Here's our, here's a link to all of our terms of service. And I really think they should get more specific, you know, address specific line items that were violated. And they, and, you know, I've heard like the Electronic Frontier Foundation has talked about having some sort of appeals process because a lot of people, uh, will get caught you know, for speech that was taken out of context or just one of their, you know, their dragnet automation removed it. Uh, and so there should be some way to appeal bad decisions. Well, I think that's the problem also that these, these companies, they're, they're, these conglomerates, they're so massive that if you tried to reach out to a person, Hey, I, I want to reach out to Facebook. It's like, good luck. <laughs> good luck trying to get a, 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 a human to answer you at some point. And I think that that's a, a big issue too. I feel to your point, this, this robotic approach, this very sterile approach to this is just, it's not the way because you need to have like real people that can hear an appeal through and make a determination of, yeah, maybe that was just, you know, misspoken or, or uh, just worded poorly, etc. But I also think that the problem is that where where's the bottom line going to come in? Because like you said, stock prices, what are you going to do? Employ a bunch of people that are going to take these calls and field these emails? Oh, no. You know, that's going to affect the bottom yeah. line. Don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the uh, solutions that, you know, I didn't come up with this, but I really like the solution is that I think social media companies, they need to open up this part of their API and allow for third parties to innovate. And I think ultimately the solution for speech on social media platforms is, has not been invented yet. You know, so I think, you know, allowing innovation and American innovation to do what it does and then maybe, 
you know, allowing it to be to, like tested in the real world environment. And then maybe, you know, if something works, then these companies can, you know, either license it or just outright buy the company. Yeah, I think I think that you need a separate set of eyes for this because there's too many there's too much focus on the bottom line as it is. And by integrating it and just uh, acquiring a company, then you're going to force that company to kind of fall in line with your standards and practices versus having mm, an true, independent yeah. oversight committee. But I think that you're, you're definitely onto something. I think that some sort of independent oversight entity might, might be the way to do it where it works in, in partnership with a Facebook and a Twitter and a YouTube. Because I mean, let's, let's use YouTube as a great example. Uh, you know, you go into the comment section of a YouTube video sometimes and you ask yourself, how do these people live with themselves with what, with what they write <laughs> in there? And, and sometimes it's, it's scary because if you look at a video of like children, you know, unboxing toys, just using that as an example, you can dig deep enough in that comment section where somebody will write something hurtful or just downright, downright terrible. And, and, yeah. and the, and the thing about right. it is, that sure you can report it or sure you could disable comments, but it, it's exactly that because guess what? YouTube, even though they're crawling through it and enough people might complain about it, it's like, is it, is it going to get caught? Because guess what? If you looked at the video and the video is three years old and that comment is still there, then nothing was done. Yeah. No, and I remember, you know, they, they tried to institute a real names policy similar to the the Facebook one that we were talking about. Right. And, you know, because they thought, you know, if people have to use their real names to make these comments, they're going to think twice about leaving a really nasty comment. And, you know, fortunately, Google kind of pulled back and, and realized that the real names policy is going to create more problems than it solves. Yep. Because you know, so there's, no the, good, yeah. there's no good solutions to these problems. And no, we need it, more innovation. It's, 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 it's so, it's so tough. And, and, you know, I want to get into uh, the White House, because you went and you used their their censorship. Uh, uh, I, I want to. I guess their censorship tool is what we want to use for this. And um, it was what you were sh- what was shared with me that that Alex sent over. I said to myself, "Wow, that's that's insane." So can can you give us a little background on that? Yeah. So you know when when all of when Facebook did that purge where they purged like four or five uh, conservatives. Uh, off of Facebook, like all on the same day in one press release, really. Um, you know, Donald Trump's reaction to that was that the White House created this typeface form where you can, you know, fill out your information and, uh, document, uh, ways that you've been censored online. Um, so I wanted to try it, right? And one of the first things that I needed to do was I needed to get censored myself. And I thought, you know, the fastest and easiest way to make sure that I get censored was to go to Reddit. And, uh, type something up on the infamous subreddit, the Donald. You're familiar with the Donald? Yes, I've heard of the Donald just because it's referenced in comment sections, et cetera. Yeah. And so their moderators are very, very strict about, um, not allowing liberal voices on the, on, on the subreddit. So what I did was I made a real quick post. I think it was like one sentence where I said, you know, I just read this article and it looks like Donald Trump Jr. may have committed treason. And then I posted a link to like an article in The Guardian. And within six minutes, I was banned from the Donald subreddit. Wow. Uh, and I, I violated two of their rules. Rule number two was uh, I was trolling. And rule number six was they don't allow liberal cucks on their platform. Wow. <laughs> so I violated the liberal cuck rule. Um, 
but so immediately after that, you know, I uh, filled out uh, the White House's censorship form. And one of the things that I was shocked to find was how much information they ask you for. Right. And, and some of the giveaways here was that they wanted they didn't just want my name, but they wanted my first name and my last name in separate fields. Right. So right away, that started to feel like uh, I'm filling out a form to sign sign up for a newsletter. Right. Because they like having those names separate so they can, you know, personalize the message. Right. Uh, when they send out a newsletter. And then I found a bunch of other stuff. Right. So they're asking for my phone number. I don't know why they need my phone number. Uh, they're also asking for my zip code, which is, you know, something very typical when you're trying to geo target your newsletter. Uh, and, you know, so all this information. And then finally, we get to the section where um, they wanted me to, to fill out uh, what how I was censored. Right. And so basically I filled out all that information and then the terms of service popped up and I read the terms of service and the terms of service basically say that they can use any information that I submitted to them any way they want. Right. So if they want to put it in a campaign ad, if they want to use it in some sort of, you know, maybe in the newsletter, they're allowed to do it. Right. So every screenshot that I uploaded, they wow. have the right to use. Holy cow. That's that's insane. Only because if you're sharing this and especially because if they're asking for your phone number thing it's like you're not going to get a personal call from somebody in the white house that says hey we see you that your 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 right to free speech was violated we're going to work on that for you <laughs> yeah no it's going to be around campaign time it's yep. going to call asking for money of course that's yeah. that's very very scary and the, and the worst and and the other thing is and and this is the interesting part as i read as i read the piece was that they can also turn around and if you wrote something negative, next thing you know, you're in a list of people that write negative things about the president, you know, or, or the government or et cetera. <laughs> so, so that's another, that's another little, little piece of information and people are just, Hey, I was censored. And it's like, okay, what were you censored for? Well, I said that our current president, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, Oh, this guy thinks X. We're going to put him in this bucket. <laughs> Wait. So you mean I might be on a list now? It, it, I would, you never know, you know, <laughs> oh, man. And, well, you know, it, yeah. it, and it's funny I say that because I, I, uh, there's a, there's a gentleman, you may have heard of him, maybe not. His name is Ramit Sethi. He wrote a book, uh, called I will teach you to be rich, uh, years ago. And mm -hmm. he, um, he did a second edition of the book and he was, he's been doing the press tours and he said that, you know, he speaks very negatively about bank of America and someone that worked for bank of America that he knows personally called and told him that, Hey, you know, you're on an, on an influencer list. And he's like, what do you mean? He goes, Oh, no, no, this isn't a good influencer list. You're on a negative influencer list because of what you've said about oh, wow. bank. Of so, so you, you talking about that with the White House and just sharing that information, it makes you wonder. And that's what got my attention about wanting to have a conversation with you. It makes you wonder, like, which parts of what you're saying are being put in which buckets, you know? Are you pro-government? Yeah. Are you anti-government? Are you anti-the president? <laughs> Next thing you know, sure, it may mean nothing. But to your point, this is data that can be looked at and they can say, well, you know, we noticed that a lot of the guys on a lot of people that have been caught on Reddit um, that have had their that have been censored have been speaking negatively about the press. You know, that's mm. and those buckets are what scare me the most. Yeah, no, and you're absolutely right. I didn't even think about that. Um, but now I'm scared too. <laughs> yeah, because it, because think about it, and 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 again, this has nothing to do. And I and I want to you know clear that up for the listener. 
this has nothing to do with who's in office because it may, you know, it could be two, four years from now when someone else is in office and they may want to reach out to you to, to send you certain leaflets or certain language or certain, again, newsletters that may actually be favorable because, Hey, we noticed that this guy wasn't a fan of this administration. Maybe if we pitch him X, that may be a, he may want to support this agenda. Mm. And that's You're the, absolutely right. It's crazy. It is crazy. I mean, and what it makes you think about is all those poor people that put their names on petitions uh, for labor unions or socialists or communists back in the 50s and then yep. had their careers destroyed by the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Yep. So, I mean, we've seen it before. You know, what you're saying is, is stuff we've experienced before only 70 years ago. So I think mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. And and that's and therein lies the, the, the problem. And, and, you know, there's there's a lot of cases about censorship. I mean, you know, I was reading the piece about uh Fane, Fane Lozman that you were writing about and um that you know that individual was censored took the fight to the Supreme Court which was a crazy story and um I'm sure I'm sure you're going to be sharing that in in an episode of Bleeped as well correct the first episode actually nice so yeah it, it'll be released June 8th. there you go I think I think <laughs> that that story that story in and it of itself is things that people may not be aware of it's like yeah, you know, we're being censored by big government or, oh, we're being censored by the media, but it goes, it's very, it's very granular. I mean, look at, uh, Chick-fil-A, you know, Chick-fil-A has their views on certain things and people are like, oh, you know, they shouldn't say that. And it's like, but they're doing exactly what we're doing. You know, <laughs> they're, they're saying, Hey, we don't agree with this. We're not going to support it. And that's where we stand. It's no different than, you know, a sporting goods store not wanting to sell guns in the wake of gun tragedy. They choose to do that, you know, like, well, who are we to tell them that you shouldn't say that? Yeah, you're right. And and when you talk about uh, uh, Fane Lozman's example, you know, it's interesting because it, it, for him, it wasn't big government doing it to him. It was actually yep. a little government. Yep. Little know, government. It, was just, it was it was a municipality that basically stole his house from him, which is which is crazy. I mean, and the, the thing about that is that especially because I like that you said, you know, Florida, Florida is a great example of a lot of weird cases. You know, I have. Uh, my father-in-law lives in Florida and the stuff he shares with me sometimes I'm <laughs> like, I'm like, really? That's a thing. Especially because what part, what part of Florida he's in uh, Daytona beach. Oh, okay. So, cool. you know, he'll say, Oh, you know, the, uh, uh I, you know, I had to, uh, this is the, this is the pistol I get to carry. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So you're just acted. So it's all good. You just go, you fill out a form. They make sure you didn't commit any crimes and you get to walk into Walmart with a gun. Awesome. you know like that's i'm like okay that's that's all it takes (laughs) yeah i know and you know florida also you know they the infamous stand your ground law yeah there's a lot of crazy stuff in florida i cannot tell you how many stories come out of florida it's a it's a special state well i think that the thing about it is and and you know stand your ground a lot of these things it's it's the same thing it's it goes back to what people talk about when there's police assault cases it's like okay you know, when, what force is excessive force? I think that obviously if someone's life is threatened, then yes. But, you know, if the person's come, is coming at you with a fork and you can shoot them in the leg, then that would be the correct course of action versus, oh, this guy got shot 16 times because he had a fork. You know, I'm like, okay, I don't know about that. I don't think that was the right way to go. Yeah. And, and I mean, I know a, a lot of times uh, cases like that end up, uh, making the news and mm-hmm. everyone you know talks about it in the news but really those things should be tried by juries 
Uh, and I always feel that, you know, uh, district attorneys don't often bring uh, cases like that to trial, but I think they should go to trial and I think juries should decide them. Diverse juries. Well, I think I think that one of the best parts of of something you said in a, in a statement was that you like stories that have clear protagonists and antagonists. And I think that that's the problem sometimes that when a story is being pitched to us by the news or, you know, I always like to call it a uh, weapons of mass distraction because the minute something, <laughs> the minute something big happens, they're just going to bombard you with it. But then when it gets a little too big and they want to take it away, they'll be like, Oh, here's this cat that plays the piano, you know? And then all of a sudden that other news item was not talked about. And I, I'm going to run this incident instance by you to see what you think. So remember when the government shutdown was happening because obviously they didn't want to build the wall for in mm-hmm. Mexico. Mm-hmm. So think about this. So government shutdown, all the employees are furloughed. Guys are working border patrol and a drug dealer, come, you know, drug cartel comes through and they go, listen, you know, you turn the other cheek, there's $50,000 in it for you. So all of a sudden now that furloughed worker who is not getting paid can just turn the other cheek and make $50,000. So by closing the government and not letting these people get paid, you're in essence creating a way for cartels to leverage these poor people to still bring drugs into this country. Yeah, I mean, I think cartels always have that kind of leverage. Oh, no, but I mean, in that case... Certainly, certainly, if somebody's worried about being able to feed their family, yep. they're going to be more susceptible to it. Exactly. So, so think about that. The government shut down. They're not getting paid. You know, everybody's talking about the wall and the government shutdown, but nobody's talking about the fact that that's opening us up to people to, you know, because the guy that's not getting paid, not, that's not to say I'm, you know, not to disparage any, any people working on the border, but that they may not feel like being as attentive, you know, just because they're angry that they're not paid, but they still got to come to work. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, what, what essentially what happened is that we use people, we use middle class federal employees, you know, as as a political tool to yep. make a point. And, and I don't think it's fair. You know, like if you remember, because I remember there were a lot of stories about the TSA workers just not showing up. Uh huh. And it's like, you know, we we need them. You know, we we want the TSA to be in the airports because of what happened on 9-11. percent. You know, so, you know, if you. Do you really want to create a system where you're, you're incentivizing them not to show up for work and to take sick days? Yep. And, you know, we really shouldn't do that. I really think we should take shutting down the government off the table as a negotiating tool. Uh-huh. Because I don't think it's good. And, and, and you see, that's exactly where I was I was leaning towards, because if you think about it, you know, the TSA is there working without a paycheck. Yes, they're going to do their job. Are they going to do their job? It, again, I like to call it the dangling carrot. It's like, are you going to do it for free as well as you do it if you were getting paid? It raises that question. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like, I mean, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, because because, you know, if if you've ever had a job before where you come into work and punch in and then you just feel bitter, like Mm -hmm. everyone, everyone who has experienced that feeling knows that you perform at about 30 to 40 percent of your, your peak ability. There you go scary right and 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 that's the thing you know the news is bombarding us with the government is shut down the wall needs to be built we need money this and that but you know those little news stories of hey you know the the border the border is kind of not as secure as you would think because the government is in fact shut down they're not that, that's not going to be 
the leading story on the news. No, <laughs> you know, and that's and that's what mm. I mean. Like the like the, they're they're using everything else to keep you from thinking about that other facet. Like, well, that could happen because it, it's and I and I share that with you because I remember when it happened. A lot of people that I know, they were like, yeah, you know, what about people that get, you know, food stamp benefits or people that genuinely need the help that can't get it, for instance. It's like crime is going to go up because people are going to have to do things they may not want to do. Like if a, if a guy needs to, to feed his kids, it's like, eh, you know, he may rethink doing something, you know, because again, bottom line is you got a screaming baby in your house that has, and you don't have no money to feed it. it, it it's going to open up a different line of thinking. And I think that that's the problem to, to, you know, to bring it full circle that happens when you censor certain parts of the story as well, because censorship isn't just people being silenced, but I also think that it's stories being silenced. Yeah. And I mean, the media likes, you know, they, they almost like to treat our federal government like a sport, right? Like it's the Red Sox versus the Yankees. hundred percent. They have this great rivalry, right? And that rivalry is exciting because it attracts viewers, which you can then sell advertising on. But in reality, when you have a standoff like that, you know, it, it impacts real people in their stomachs. And, you know, it, like I said before, it, it's not fair. You know, it, people should not have to uh, worry about whether or not they're going to be able to feed their families based on some scuffle that's happening at the Capitol. Yep. I always like to say it's two millionaires hitting each other with sacks of money. <laughs> that's it's the monopoly guy fighting the other monopoly guy and that and that's the scary part and you know i'm that's why i I wanted to speak to you because your your podcast is going to showcase those stories you're going to see that the little guy is fighting the good fight just as much as the rest of us it's just the fact that they don't have the platform to do it i mean you know fane lozman's case think about it like you said they took they took the guys home from him you know like like nobody that's scary it's a scary concept it is scary and the scary thing is that it took him something like six years uh to get a court decision that was in his favor you know he had to go all the way to the supreme court in order to have them rule that what happened was illegal and the, and they still haven't compensated him for it you know his house was destroyed and they owe him a couple hundred <laughs> thousand dollars for it and they just refused to pay oh yeah because now now it's just going to be they're going to appeal the payout. They're going to appeal the payout. They're going to appeal the payout. And the scary part is that depending on how old, how old is he, by the way? I believe he's in his 50s now. I don't know his precise age. So so the reason I say this, and this is this is just a morbid way of thinking, but you know, they're like, oh, the, the litigation will outlive the litigant. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, they think yeah. this way. You know this. They're like, eh, you know, we'll just tie it up and, you know, maybe we'll throw them a couple of shekels here and there. But, you know, the full payout, eh, we'll just drag that out a little bit. Yeah. And the really crazy thing about that story is that everyone on the city council in Riviera Beach, Florida, is different than when the incident happened. Of course. It's a completely (laughs) different set of people. So they're, they're just trying, they just don't want it to impact their budget. And, and, and it's, uh, again, it goes back to what you said earlier about the bottom line. It's not just even, the bottom line for companies, but it's the bottom line for small governments. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause a couple hundred thousand dollars means a lot to a small city. Absolutely. Especially if it be, if it's something where, you know, they have to pay for this or they have to pay for that, or the budget is a little short. I mean, as an, as a New York city resident, uh, the, I see, I see it all the time, especially, you know, when it comes to like mass transit and fare hikes, it's like, Oh, we're going to charge more to cross the bridges and tunnels, or we're going to charge more to get on the subway. But it's like, okay, but 
where is that money really going? Because the station still looks like crap, you know, or the or the cars look still look like garbage, you know. I mean, the the funny thing was recently I I, I published a piece on on the site about them instituting uh, the ability to use Apple Pay and Google Pay to pay for your fares on on mass transit here in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, well, we're only going to roll it out to one to to th- uh, stations on this particular line and these particular buses. And I'm like, wow, that's great. But all the all the money we pay, we're not going to see this till 2021, 22, 23. Why? You know, <laughs> but that's because, you know, a hundred a hundred thousand dollars for a screw, another hundred thousand dollars for a screwdriver. <laughs> Yeah, and they've been really needing to upgrade that system for a long, long time. I mean, when did they put the card system in? It was it was uh, in the late nineties, right? Yeah, I mean, I was a the kid. Card? Yep, I was a kid when the Metro Card first started, and I remember, and I and I was even younger and with tokens, you know. So I definitely remember that. Yeah, it was late, late, right, right around between the transition to eighty to ninety. But I want to say it was mid nineties for sure that it really mm. took hold. Right. Yeah, that was that was a little bit before my time here, but I I do remember you know when uh, we would come to like because uh, I grew up in the suburbs, right? So I remember you know uh, we'd come to Yankee games and we get a whole bunch of tokens. Yep. And when I was a kid, I thought they were cool because it, it looked like money. Yep. Oh, you're hundred. Um, I mean, you're you're absolutely right about uh, there being questions about where that money goes, and I mean the MTA, the New York the New York MTA is a whole nother podcast for a whole nother time. No, of course. You know that's like uh. Just like a whole thing that you can go back right to the very beginning with Robert Moses and everything and start dissecting where it went wrong. Well, it, it, the the reason is because, you know, looking at looking at, at, at uh, you know, Mr. Lozman's story, I said to myself, this was a matter of just, you know, the squeaky, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, you know, like like he fought it, he fought it, he fought it, he won. But it's like had he had a higher economic standing, you know, or had he been part of some you know some influential family or had he been this or that would the outcome have been different yeah that's a great question i mean he he actually is pretty wealthy uh but what he doesn't have is is clout in the government exactly you know when he showed up and he started fighting them he was not like donating to their campaigns and trying to schmooze yep you know he he was very you know he was combatant Yep. And then and it makes you wonder, you know, if you would have had one or two guys, hey, I, you know, I donated to your campaign, blah, 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 you know, and here you are. Here's the government trying. Would that have would that have changed the narrative somewhat? It just makes you wonder. Yeah, definitely. And another thing that impacted him, which I which I don't cover in the episode, is that he tried. So when he was at the, the district court level, he represented himself and he tried to actually get himself a lawyer. Uh, but none of the lawyers wanted to work with him because there was so much business that they were getting from the, from the Florida municipalities that they didn't want to, <laughs> they didn't want to risk all that by representing Fane Lozen. Unbelievable. That's, yeah. that's so insane. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what you, what you put together with bleeped. Now I did want to get dissect what, you know, what goes into make what, what's going to go into making this podcast and even what went into making your previous. So are you, are these, how are you actively getting these stories? Are you getting leads? Are people coming to you directly to share their stories? Or are you researching and then going out and reaching out to these individuals if the story is compelling? Yeah, it's it's researching. Um, so my creative process is, you know, I'm always reading, always reading, you know, books or or, you know, online periodicals. And you never know 
where ideas leap out at you. And, and often it's crazy, right? Like you're reading a book and there's this footnote about this weird thing and you're like, hmm, that's an interesting weird thing. So when I when I see something like that, what I do is I have a um, an Apple note where I just write down all my ideas, right? I haven't vetted those ideas. I just write them all down with the perp- with the intention of going back to them later. Uh, and right now I have like 150 ideas on this notepad. Wow. Probably only five to ten percent of them are viable for episodes, but you know it doesn't matter, right? That's just part of the creative process. And then you know when I sit down and I research them, you know, which is sometimes that buying a book that somebody wrote, or it's uh, going into newspaper archives, or or just reading stuff that you know current news that's been posted to blogs like BuzzFeed. And you kind of get a sense of what the story is in your head. You come up with a little bit of an arc and then you figure out who the key players are and you reach out to them and see if they want to do an interview. Uh, and that's really how I do it. And then so then I do the interviews and then I cut it up into a documentary. And now do you um, your process for that? You, you had mentioned that you use Apple Notes. Are you doing all of this uh, on a Mac as well? Absolutely. And yeah, you're using I, GarageBand? No, I use Pro Tools. Remember, nice. I'm, I'm, I'm a professional audio engineer, right? So Atta like, boy. I've, I've, been, I've, been <laughs> I've been using Pro Tools for like 15 years. It's, and even though there are cheaper options, and probably a lot of them are as good, my hands are so used to using the key commands for Pro Tools that I am so much slower on other software that I just can't switch. Really? Yeah. It's like there's just a muscle memory to it. That's 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 a pretty cool little tidbit of information only because, you know, so many people, they come in, they they edit and especially you coming from from this, you know, from a larger audio space. It, it's it's interesting to hear that just because a lot of people, they they'll use, you know, Adobe Audition, GarageBand. You're only, I think, the second or third person who I've spoken to just personally that I that uses Pro Tools. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> well, thanks. Now. Then, you know, cutting it up in, into a documentary, what's your prep process? What does it take to, to create an episode? You know, what's your average uh, creation time? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I never really timed it out. Um, but, you know, after I record all the interviews and, and, and probably the length of time it takes me to make an episode is dependent on how many interviews I need to do. Gotcha. You know, because if you do one interview, you might be dealing with somewhere between an hour to two hours of audio that you need to sift through. Okay. And once you start, once you start getting into four or five interviews, you can be dealing with 10 hours of audio. And, uh, then what I do is I take those interviews and I use Trent, uh, Trent.com to do transcriptions. All right. So then now I have a, a, a transcript. I can very, very easily just cut and paste text that I want to put into the documentary into a Google doc and start creating a script. Okay. Right. And you know, if there's if it's a short interview and it's just one that can take you know a couple of hours or, or a day, but if there's a lot of interviews and a lot a lot of stuff to sift through, it can take quite a long time. And and I know that you were talking about you know when you wanted to to interview uh, from Two Live Crew. So you're are you also going on location? Yeah, when I can. Okay. When I can. I mean, I haven't I haven't taken a trip to a location in in a while. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. All of my New York City interviews, I try to do uh, in person. But a lot of times what I do is that when I have like I've done a lot of interviews in Lafayette, Louisiana, um, you know, and I'll just hire a local audio engineer there, pay him a little bit of money and they'll bring a microphone and a recorder 
uh, to wherever is convenient for the person I'm interviewing. And then I'll just do the interview over the phone. And then how, how are you finding audio engineers when you're remotely? Are you just, is there, are you using your own internal network or are you using Craigslist, you know? Oh, there's like a public radio form that, that you can post, um, uh, uh, messages into and be like, Hey, I need somebody for a tape sync in San Francisco, 10 a.m. tomorrow. Wow. And you'll usually get a couple of responses. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's a, yeah, that's a, a nice it's little a Google, tool. It's a Google listserv. Nice. That's a, yeah. that's a cool way to do that. And when you're, when you're, doing remote or how are you you said that uh, if you don't get an audio engineer how are you recording are you recording with uh you know a zoom or so or, or a small rig like that or are you recording into your phone when i'm re- recording remotely yeah when you go when on location i should say well i should say when you're going on location to, re- to record an interview oh so for um i i use pretty good gear uh so i use uh sound devices a uh, recorder uh it's the six input one i forget what the uh, name of the model is but uh, it's about $800 for this recorder. And I like this recorder because the preamps sound really good. The analog to digital conversion sounds really good. Uh, with a lot of the, the more inexpensive recorders, if you use certain microphones that require a lot of volume boost, yep. are going, you're going to get a lot of hiss, right? So the higher end ones, they don't have that hiss. And that's important to me. Right, because you always uh, have to try and then work on that in post. And that becomes another layer of editing. Yeah, you got to use you know noise removal software in yep. order to get rid of it, and it's just easier to get the recording correct right away. And what? And what, also, go ahead. And also, those things are built like tanks, right? I mean, they they never crash; they they always work. I just absolutely love sound devices stuff. Nice. And what are you? What uh? What mics are you using for those for that? Right, so for my guests, I'm using Audio Technica forty uh, fifties, and for my own voice, I have a an. Neumann, oh, what the hell? Hold on, I have it right here. Let me find that model. It's a popular model. Okay. Case, right. It's the TLM 103, which is a which is a pretty standard, um, like public radio broadcast microphone. Nice. Now, out of I have curiosity, what when you were working for Sirius and for and ter, and when you were doing terrestrial radio. Was everybody still using, um, you know, like the high pr PR40s or the, um, what was the other one? Uh, the other, there's, uh, like the RE20. Yes, the RE20. That's I mean, it. Yeah. They use a lot of RE20s, but I mean, it actually changed, uh, studio to studio. You know, some, some of the, like the FM DJs, for example, cousin Brucey, he used an RE20 or, or I think maybe he used an RE27, which is the shinier one. Um, uh, you know, the FM DJs like to use those those dynamic microphones because it makes them sound like an FM DJ. Right. Whereas people that have talk shows uh, where they want uh, a real c- clarity of voice, they're probably going to use a large capsule condenser microphone like the TLM 103. Nice. That's, that's good to know only because, you know, it's always interesting, especially when I talk to, you know, fellow fellow audio guys, what, what people use. And I mean, that's the that's the backbone of this show, you know, just the tech that goes into creating this content. I mean, I listened to your, to your bleep, the uh, pilot episode and your audio was immaculate. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I yeah. really appreciate that. Yeah. I was like, I was like, wow, this, this, that's the mark of a, of a pro right there. Like you could just hear the, the nice, you know, beautiful leveled sound, great cut with the music. It was, it was great. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I, when I started making podcasts, I didn't have much advantages over people that have journalism backgrounds. Right. But I think having an audio engineering background was its own advantage, without a doubt. 
Absolutely. It gives you, it gives you a little, uh, it gives you a little edge, especially because you're using Pro Tools, you're using, you know, uh, a, a higher capacity DAW software. So, you know, for a yeah, lot yeah. of people that, that definitely is going to give them a lot of inspiration. And you said that Bleep goes live June 18th, right? June 18th. Yes. All of the feeds are live. Um, so you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Uh, the one on Spotify should be up soon. Uh, it's on Stitcher. It should be on just about everything at this point. So you can subscribe now. You can also visit my website, uh, bleeped.org for more information. Nice. I, uh, I wanted to take this now to set, to segue into the, the next part of the interview, which is the hot seat, just a series of rapid fire questions, uh, totally off the cuff. You know, you can answer as, as best as you can. You can skip whatever works for you. And, um, right. give me one second to crack open this LaCroix here. Cause I feel like I'm go. going to need a drink. There we go. All right. Let's do it. All right. So you're, you're doing, uh, obviously using Apple for, for all your devices. Um, when you, Turn on your phone in the morning. What's the first app you go to? Gmail. All right. Have you read all your messages, or do you have do you have that little red number reminding you? <laughs> oh no, I I go through them pretty quick and delete the ones. That red number drives me nuts. <laughs> 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 it's like it's like a little thing nagging you. That's yeah. it. Do you use a laptop or a desktop for your editing? Laptop. Uh, only, but only because they're cheaper at this point. Um, I used to have a desktop. I have one of those big, beautiful silver ones that they used to make. And, uh, I love that machine. Oh, yeah. But yeah. Unfortunately, it, it couldn't, I couldn't upgrade the operating system. So I switched to a, a MacBook Pro. Nice. And it's crazy because they, everybody's been clamoring for, for a pro type of computer. I think they tried it with the iMac Pro, but, you know, everybody still, or, or the trash can, but it's not the same. Yeah. I mean, that trash can is $3,000. I know. It's crazy. At, at its base cost, right? And if you want to upgrade the memory, it, it, you can get up to like four and a half. It's really, you know, it's you need to be a large company with a large budget in order to afford machinery like that. Yeah, it's pretty intense. What's uh, one website you recommend to people often? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Let's come back to that one. All right. Um, when you're consuming news... How are you doing it? Do you use independent websites, major websites to also work on, on your research? Or do you just uh, take notes from varying sources? I have Google alerts for a lot of search terms. Okay. So when I, when I really want to get specific, I just make a Google alert about it. For, uh, uh, for general research, I have kind of like, you know, I'll go to Slate, I'll go to Daily Beast, I'll go to Politico. But when I find a topic that I really want to follow, like, for example, um, campus free speech or, or a drag queen story hour, I'll just make a Google alert. So I get everything. Nice. What's your favorite piece of tech besides your phone or your computer? <sighs> My Apple TV. Nice. Yeah. I feel like I'm an ad for Apple. They should be paying me for this because <laughs> I mean, the ecosystem works. I haven't made the full transition only because. Like I built my Windows machine, so th that's the only thing that kind of stops me. But it does like, like being able to airdrop like an edited podcast right into your phone is something I wish I, I was able to do because that, you know, or a piece of video that I did. That's the mm -hmm. only thing I miss because, you know, you have to drop it in Dropbox or Google Drive or wherever and then wait for it to sync with your phone. So I'm almost there, but I, but I get, I, I feel your pain. <laughs> Well, if you can build your, your own machine and you know how to do that, you're going to make some pretty awesome machines. 
you know, one of the things that is driving me nuts about Apple is how like they don't want you to open up the computer, oh. right? They want to make it hard as possible to just upgrade the RAM. You know, with, with PCs now, you know, they, it's very easy to take the side off and, you know, install another hard drive or change the RAM. So the fact that you're doing that, and you, pro- you probably are, are pretty good at customizing Windows as well yep. to get rid of a lot of the annoying, annoying stuff. You know, once, once you do that, you know, something like Pro Tools is going to run pretty nicely on those machines. Yep. I mean, the I, only reason the only reason I can't do that is because they change the key commands. Oh right? no! The, the control and command are swapped on the PC and Apple. So as soon as I move to PC, I'm hitting all kinds of wrong buttons. <laughs> no, I, I I get it. I mean, I tried for for a while. My my wife had a MacBook, and it was like, oh, hit this and this, and I'm like, oh my god, it's not the same. And um, I like I said, I definitely feel feel your challenges with that. Yeah, it's universal. <laughs> Did you um? When, when you're working or preparing for uh, doing prep for your shows, do you listen to any music or do you work in silence? Often silence. When I listen to music, it's instrumental only. Okay. Uh, I like I like listening to um, pieces like like some of the calmer Miles Davis stuff, like Sketches of Spain. Nice. Okay. Um, what's an item you've purchased recently that is less than a hundred dollars that's made your life easier or more enjoyable? A six dollar box of LaCroix. Nice. Pomple move. <laughs> you know, I my, tried my girlfriend and I have an addiction. I mean we <laughs> order those things from Food Kick like you wouldn't believe. I tried the uh I tried the coconut one. That's usually the one that's in my rotation. The coconut, really? Okay. Yep. So right. my my wife likes the the pample mousse though. That's definitely mm. her, her her thing. All the flavors are pretty good. You know, I think they're all drinkable. There you go. The um if you could have dinner with someone alive or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? I've always been a huge fan of Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell is the guy who wrote the book A Hero with a Thousand Faces and basically began the field of comparative mythology. Uh, the plot for Star Wars is largely based on his book Hero with a Thousand Faces. Really? Uh, he, he passed away. I, I believe it was the late 90s he passed away. But... Uh, he was just so smart and, and so wise that I would love to have dinner with him. Nice. Um, and, I, and I'm assuming you would discuss the book? Yeah. Yeah, we would discuss the book. Or just, I mean, he could talk about anything, though. And he wrote a lot of books, so. There you go. If there's one company to look out for in the coming year, who would it be based on your personal opinion? So I'm, I'm, very, very, it, I'm very, very interested in uh, these Canadian cannabis companies. Okay. I think... Uh, you know, Canada just legalized growing marijuana for recreational purposes. And I think these Canadian companies, even though their stocks might be a little overpriced right now, I think they're going to, you know, create international businesses that really uh, change things. Uh, and I think once America finally legalizes cannabis, you're going to see these Canadian firms descend into America and our our cannabis industry is going to be run by these Canadian companies. Wow. That's, that's, that's a very unexpected answer. And I agree with you. I think that as more states continue to legalize, it's creating more and more opportunities. I mean, more people talk about dispensaries and getting into this business because it's, it's very lucrative. Yeah, it is. And, you know, whenever you make something illegal, you just create a void in the market. And a long time that void has been filled by illegal activity. But, you know, the demand for that product has just kept growing and growing and growing. And I think, you know, it's it's a great business to be in. There you go. Where would you like to see 
uh, the Bleeped podcast a year from now? I would like to see it uh, with enough listeners where it's sustainable and, you know, add supported sustainability and, you know, maybe be able to hire some help. Um, I would like to see it where, you know, people, you know, are, are kind of motivated by some of these stories too. Like I think the thing that it would absolutely mean the most to me would be to have somebody send me an email where they said, I was censored and I was scared, but I remember listening to one of your episodes and I decided to fight back. I mean, that email would just be the most amazing thing. So you're, you're definitely seeking to, to inspire people, definitely. Yeah, I hope so. Yes. You know, a, a, they're not alone and B, you can fight back. That's, that, that's a perfect way to close out the hot seat and, um, take us to the, to the final portion of the interview. Reach one, teach one. Um, what would you tell someone that's looking to get into this field, uh, whether it's, uh, terrestrial satellite or podcasting? What's one piece of actionable advice you would give them? To, to just start making it. Right. You can always upgrade your gear. You can always tweak the show. But, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people, there's just too much, uh, like anxiety about doing it. It's like, how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? And really what you want to do is just, you know, jump right into the pool, start making it and then figure out your mistakes from there. And I, I promise you, you will learn faster that way than by going onto message boards and asking people. Makes sense. I think that's a, that's a great piece of advice. And um, last but not least, to close things out, where can people find you on social media and keep up with your work? Yeah, so I'm at uh, uh, Bleeped Pod on Twitter. That's my Twitter handle. Uh, I am on Facebook. I think you can just type in Bleeped Podcast and it should come up. Uh, my website is bleeped.org. And again, if you want to subscribe to the show, I am on every podcast distributor. Nice. Awesome. Matt, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down, share your story, and more importantly, share the toys and tech of your trade. Hey, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, that wraps up our interview with Matthew Billy. Make sure to check out the Bleeped podcast when it debuts on June 18th. Look for it on iTunes, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. Links for it will be in the show notes, as well as links to Matthew's social media accounts if you want to catch up with him, talk censorship, talk podcasting, etc. We'll make sure to include that in the show notes. We'll also have links to the gadgets and gear that we discussed in this episode. Mostly gadgets and gear, less toys, definitely this time around, just because we were so wrapped up in the censorship conversation and the hot seat kind of went more the podcasting route. But nonetheless, uh, definitely an amazing conversation. I truly, truly enjoyed it, and I hope you do too. With that said, that's going to wrap up this week's episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade. Make sure to follow us on social media. No need for me to name all of them. Just look for the links in the show notes for this episode. But if you want to have the quickest and easiest way to engage with myself and just the Rageworks brand, Instagram is always probably one of the easiest methods since we're constantly putting content there, followed by our Facebook fan page and the Rageworks group. If you're interested in being a guest on a future episode and sharing your story, you can email podcast at rageworks.net or rich at rageworks.net, whichever you prefer. And if you don't want to do email, we do have a contact form on the website. All right, guys, thank you for checking out this episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade. We'll see you in two weeks. Peace.
Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Big Mac, Chicken McNuggets, no, Big Mac and Quarter Pounder with cheese, or filet fish You'd be doing the same thing if you were at McDonald's because you can choose not just one, but two of your favorites for just six bucks. Tasty Big Mac, crispy 10-piece Chicken McNuggets, juicy Quarter Pounder with cheese, or savory filet fish Enjoy two of your all-time favorites for just six bucks, if you can decide on the two. Prices and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal, single item at regular price.